2: I love the texture, especially the silky tofu that you find in Mapo tofu. Oh my god, I just like, I'm in heaven.
1: I don't think there's a protein like it that can change so dramatically on how it's actually made. It's just amazing. You can fry it, you can deep fry it, you can steam it. It's like amazing. Yeah, it's really, really my favorite protein for sure.
2: Tofu can trace its origins back over 2,000 years. Legend has it that a Chinese cook made an
1: amazing discovery when he accidentally curdled a pot of soybean soup. Nowadays, it's one of the most widely used soy-based foods in the world. And it's well known as being a great source of protein too. Tofu is ubiquitous across Asia. However, it took a long time for tofu to actually become an everyday ingredient in the West. In fact, it took several attempts
2: for this most humble of food staples to take America by storm, starting with founding father and possibly America's first foodie, Benjamin Franklin.
1: Today on Eat Drink Asia, we're tracing the history of how tofu made its way to the United States and seeing how this versatile product became a common sight on American supermarket shelves. First up, we go all
2: the way back to the earliest recorded mention of tofu in America, which was in a letter written in 1770.
3: Benjamin Franklin read about the cheese that the Chinese make from Chinese kalavanses, which were actually soybeans. And then Franklin wrote a friend of his in Philadelphia, and told him about this, and at the same time sent him some soybeans.
1: Then we go to the late 19th century, where Asian immigrants began making tofu in the U.S.
3: So in 1878, a company named Wo Sing and Company, a Chinese company, first started making tofu, according to the Wells Fargo and Company Directory of Chinese Business Houses, published in San Francisco. That's the earliest documented record of anyone making tofu in the United States.
2: Next, we jump forward 100 years to when non-Asian Americans began embracing tofu thanks to the counterculture explosion.
0: What happened in the the late 60s on top of this, you know, existing infrastructure uh, was the counterculture, uh, you know, the hippie movement especially Uh, that which was based in San Francisco. And that sparked a real widespread interest in vegetarianism.
1: And finally, we look at how this once exotic ingredient has become Americanized. Three years into the
4: farmer's market, we created so many different kinds of, like I think eight kind of tofu salads. They can eat it hot, they can eat it warm, they can eat it cold as a salad appetizer. So it's getting really popular. So I found out that we learn from, from people want to eat healthy.
1: This is Eat Drink Asia, where in each episode, we deep dive into an Asian food or drink that's gone global. Stay with us. We also have tofu pudding
5: and also deep fried tofu with fish paste on top. Yeah, so these are the, the
1: most popular items. This is Renee So. She's the director of Kong Wu Tofu Factory, one of Hong Kong's oldest tofu producers. The shop is nestled amongst a maze of street stalls in one of Hong Kong's working class neighborhoods. Here they make tofu from soaked soybeans from 1 a.m. to
2: 6 p.m. every day. In their dining area, customers can enjoy ice-cold soy milk, pan-fried tofu puffs, and even tofu ice cream. They can also buy other items like fermented, dried or soft tofu to cook at home. The shop has been making tofu in Hong Kong since 1893, starting on Canton Road before it moved to Sham Shui Po in 1958. Renee says tofu can be incredibly versatile, from cheap and cheerful to Michelin-starred.
5: We run our shop in like a fast way, like street food, yeah. Sometimes it's difficult to do it in like a very like artistic like I think tofu is also like very special because you can do it in like a like us like very fast uh local street food but you can also put on the menu like French like very high price uh, like artistic yeah I think tofu itself is very flexible It really depends on how the chef, like, want to present to their customers.
1: Tofu is ingrained in the culinary landscape in Hong Kong. Here, you can eat everything from Cantonese-style steamed tofu with soy sauce to fiery Mapu tofu from Sichuan. You can even get your hands on Taiwanese stinky tofu if you know where to look. Tofu is inexpensive and easy to prepare. Unlike in the West, it's not usually considered as a meat substitute. But rather, just another great source of protein. It's also extremely versatile and comes in all shapes and textures.
2: It can be soft and silky or crispy and pillowy, depending on how it's made and what it is cooked with.
5: When it comes to like Chinese cooking, we doesn't want to add so much like flavor into tofu because we want to enjoy the original like taste of the soya bean. First, let's talk history. The history of tofu
2: in China goes back over 2,000 years. There are several theories as to how it was invented. One legend has it that a cook made it accidentally by curdling a soybean soup with impure sea salt. The earliest written mention of tofu was recorded just before the Song Dynasty in 960 AD. According to the Soy Info Center, the word tofu then appeared in Japan almost 200 years later.
1: While tofu has been around for centuries in Asian countries like Japan, Korea, Indonesia and Thailand, it's only in the last 150 years that it's been eaten in the United States. The first American to document tofu was founding father and seemingly incredibly keen foodie Benjamin Franklin, who wrote to a friend after reading about it in a book. That letter forms the first of three waves that heralded tofu's arrival in the States.
3: Benjamin Franklin in the 1760s, who was in London at the time, read about tofu in a book by a man named Father Domingo Fernandez Navarrete, who was a Dominican friar and a missionary to China.
1: This is Bill Shirtliff. He's the founder and president of the Soy Info Center, and he's also a pretty big deal in the tofu world, but we'll talk more about his influence later.
3: Fernandez Navarrete stated, that this is a cheese that the Chinese make from Chinese kalavanses, which were actually soybeans, and there are many who will leave pullets for it, meaning who would rather have tofu than chicken. (laughs) Franklin was so interested by this that he wrote a friend of his and gave him a good description of his own, of how the Chinese make tofu, and at the same time sent him some soybeans.
2: Franklin sent soybeans to his friend John Bartram in the US who had a famous garden. It's not known whether Bartram
1: ever tried to grow the beans or make his own tofu. The second tofu wave began almost a century later with the arrival of Chinese and Japanese immigrants to the US in the late 1800s and early 1900s. That's when tofu finally began to be made in the US. This is Matthew Roth, author of Magic Bane, The Rise of Soy in America.
0: It arrived with Asian immigrants. So conceivably as far back as the uh, 1850s, 1860s, when there was uh, a large number of Chinese immigrants coming to work on the railroads and in the wake of the gold rush.
2: Not long after that, the first tofu company in America was established in California. This is
3: Bill again. So. In 1878, a company named Wo Sing and Company, a Chinese company, first started making tofu according to the Wells Fargo and Company Directory of Chinese Business Houses published in San Francisco. That's the earliest documented record of anyone making tofu in the United States. I have no doubt that Chinese were making tofu everywhere that they lived but they kept no records of it, and so we don't know. The Japanese, fortunately, kept records, and starting in about 1901, they made tofu everywhere that they lived. Even in little tiny towns, there would always be a tofu shop.
1: At the time, it seemed that non-Asian Americans didn't take to the taste of tofu straight away.
0: We have some of the early accounts of Americans being a little squigged out by tofu, uh, seeing it, uh, you know, piled, uh, you know, kind of rectangles of tofu. And I think at that point they were often dyed yellow with turmeric, but they would be piled high in windows in Chinatowns and, uh, you know, a lot of Western reporters who would go there, Western observers, uh, would look askance and wonder what, you know, the heck that stuff was.
2: there was one person who tried very hard to change that. She was an extremely fascinating woman called Yamei Kin. Born in China in 1864, she was orphaned when her parents died in an epidemic.
0: She was adopted by American missionaries and raised in part in Japan and then in part in New York. She attended a medical school in New York and became the first female Chinese uh, graduate of an American medical school.
1: Yame went on to become an advocate for how much Westerners could learn from that Chinese art of living, especially from eating tofu. In what seems like an early environmental crusade, she made the case for how tofu was much less wasteful than Western meat consumption. She became so well known for speaking on the topic in the women's club circuit that the American government asked her to help when rationing was introduced during World War One.
0: April 1917, and the United States took up arms to join the Allies. Recruits came, bankers, bakers, men from every walk of life. She was actually commissioned by the American government uh, to travel to China to investigate uh, tofu manufacture and other soy products as possible uh, substitutes for meat during the war.
2: Despite Yame's best efforts, tofu didn't gain a wider audience at the time, remaining popular only within Asian American communities.
0: Well, she tried. You know, it it stands as one of the the noble failures in the uh, efforts to promote tofu uh, in the West and among uh, Americans in particular. Uh, It took, you know, as you go back through the history, it, it took many attempts for that finally to stick
1: maybe Americans just weren't ready to embrace tofu yet. It seems that way.
2: In fact, Yame herself was quoted in the New York Times in 1917 as saying, Americans do not know how to use the soybean. It must be made attractive or they will not take to it. It must taste good. That can be done.
0: Yeah, I think too little too soon uh, is a good way of describing it. I mean, if, if we compare it to later decades where, TOFU actually broke through, uh, there were sort of a number of things missing.
1: So maybe she was just way ahead of her time.
0: This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. Japan's long-threatened aggression in the Far East began tonight.
3: The first statement said that the naval base of Pearl Harbor had been attacked from the air.
2: The somewhat slow rise of TOFU so far faced another setback with the outbreak of World War II.
1: Following the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, virtually all Japanese people living in America, the majority of whom lived on the West Coast, were sent to internment camps. They were forced to close their businesses and many Americans refused to buy any Japanese products. But
2: even during this time, tofu still remained a large part of their lives. The Japanese Americans in camps in California fought to be allowed to produce tofu for themselves as they found the food there was hard to eat. The government conceded agreeing the move might improve morale.
0: In all of the 10 internment camps that were established, tofu production was also established and provided a fair amount of the food that they would eat. There was quite a bit of struggle over the food that they were given. Many of them found it unappetizing and insisted that they they be fed a, a better diet Among the the internees themselves, there was a feeling that uh, being able to do productive work would would raise morale and create community spirit.
1: And so although small scale production continued, the Second World War really didn't help Tofu gain wider acceptance. So what did eventually happen to make tofu break out into the non-Asian community?
2: Well, the third wave, where tofu really broke out and finally became familiar to most Americans, began in the late 1960s. Not only was the infrastructure finally in place with farmers cultivating and processing soybeans on a wide scale, but the rise of the hippie counterculture spawned a massive increase in interest in vegetarianism. This movement was boosted by the publication of the Book of Tofu, which was considered by many as the Bible of Tofu. And it was co-authored by none other than Bill Shurtleff, who we've been speaking to in this episode.
3: Let me see if I can describe the, the things that characterize the counterculture. First of all, these were young people. And they were drawn together by their opposition to the war in Vietnam. Many of them used psychedelics such as LSD and marijuana. Many were vegetarians or ate little meat, and they were willing to try almost anything that looked healthy and tasty.
0: In the, the late 60s, on top of this existing infrastructure was the counterculture, the hippie movement, especially that which was based in San Francisco, and that Sparked a real widespread interest in vegetarianism. It helped spark a a greater interest in uh, Asian foods and kind of Asian culture more generally. You know, in in part as kind of uh, the anti war movement's sense of solidarity with the Vietnamese, you know, that was probably part of it, but also this real interest in uh, Asian spirituality.
1: There were a few places that were seen as being absolutely key in creating this buzz.
0: So in San Francisco, you had the Zen center that heavily influenced a lot of the counterculture. One figure who came out of kind of the the San Francisco Zen scene was William uh, Shurtleff. William,
2: or Bill as he's known, got into Tofu while he was at the Zen center.
3: I lived in a Zen monastery named Tassajara. In California, and uh, our Zen master was Japanese, and he loved tofu as all Japanese do, and so we got in the habit of serving tofu, and pretty much everybody grew to like it just as much as he did. But I didn't really think a lot about it until I got to Japan and thought, this is something I would like to do to write a book and teach people about not only tofu, but also how to start a company so they can make it.
1: The book that he wrote with his then wife, Akiko ayagi was The Book of Tofu, and it sold over 350,000 copies. In what Bill describes as a perfect storm,
2: everything finally came together for tofu at the time. The two of them went on a road trip around America to spread the word.
3: We bought a big white van and drove about 7,500 miles, only to places that had invited us to come to speak about tofu and miso. And so every place we went, the people who were there put up posters, um, they invited an audience, and so obviously the reception, everybody who was there wanted to be there. And um, I showed slides, we served recipes, it was just lots of fun and the reception was positive, very positive, and it was a wonderful experience.
1: The Book of Tofu and his nationwide tour helped to launch hundreds of non-Asian tofu makers and offered a whole new culinary experience for many ordinary Americans.
2: One of the companies that started in the U.S. following the beginning of the third wave is Phoenix Bean.
4: Hi, I'm Jenny Yang. I'm the owner of Phoenix Bean Tofu Company, and we are located in Chicago, Illinois. So if you count it from day one, we have been around 40 something years. We have about 28 products now. Um, we started very simple, just soy milk. It's not mom main pop shop, it's a you know, hole on the wall. You walk into our door, you can see the, the entire production line.
1: Their products have gained in popularity with a number of endorsements from American celebrity chefs.
4: Our soft tofu actually being used by an American chef, top chef called Stephanie Iser. So she came over, um, worked with us to find the, to learn how to make tofu. She wanted to make tofu curd. By the end of the tour, she said, Jenny, we just buy the tofu from you. <laughs> then we have uh, tofu hua, extra soft tofu. And then that tofu hua, hua actually was praised by Rick Bayless. In his demo he will say okay this is how you cook the pork shoulder but if you want to do um, vegetarian style use Jenny's you know phoenix bean tofu that will be a perfect you know, transition.
2: But where tofu has really taken off more recently is the popularity of farmers markets. Jenny first tried selling her tofu
4: at one of these markets about 10 years ago. So we were invited to join a neighborhood farmer's market Uh, have a booth, and at at that time, I don't think anybody was doing farmers' market in the Midwest as a tofu company. It was really fun to interact with American customer firsthand. Three years into the farmers' market, we created so many different kinds of, like, I eight kind of tofu salads. They can eat it hot, they can eat it warm, they can eat it cold as a salad appetizer. So it's getting really popular. So I found out that we learn from from people want to eat healthy.
1: While tofu still hasn't necessarily achieved the widespread popularity of some other foods imported to the US, like yogurt, or become as widely eaten as meat as many would have hoped, tofu has come a long way over the last 150 years in America.
0: Over the course of the 20th century, and particularly since the 1960s and 1970s, tofu went from a very uh, kind of niche product, mainly in Asian American communities, uh, to becoming uh, a widespread American food that many Americans know about and uh, many Americans appreciate. You know, it's had to overcome a fair amount of ridicule, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of people have uh, embraced it and enjoyed it.
2: In fact, the United States is now the world's second largest exporter of soybeans.
1: And now with the world in the grips of a pandemic, more people than ever are thinking very carefully about what they eat and are turning to tofu. Here's Renee So of the Kong War Tofu Factory in Hong Kong again.
5: I think in the past six months, people are paying more attention to their health because they, they know they need to have a strong body to fight the COVID-19. Yeah, And uh, we sell more like fresh tofu as well because they want to take away and uh, cook at home.
2: But strict lockdowns in the U.S. made it harder for companies to continue making their tofu.
4: This is Jenny Yang of Phoenix Bean. When the first pandemic hit, uh, everything shut down. We are uh, essential business. We were able to keep it open, um, but all the ordering, all the grocery stores or, or the restaurants all shut down. It's getting much better now. You know, we're, we're coming back and more.
1: Bill Shirtliff agrees that health concerns over the spread of the coronavirus have made a lot of people reconsider their food choices.
3: I've seen at Trader Joe's, where I do my shopping, that there is a big increase in tofu consumption nowadays.
1: He believes the pandemic has exposed the poor health and safety records of meat processing plants, causing many to look for other protein
3: alternatives. And for that reason, many people who wouldn't ordinarily eat tofu have started to eat it,
2: So the big question we really want to ask now is, how do our tofu experts like to eat their tofu? Let's start with Matthew Roth.
0: I discovered the Moosewood series of cookbooks, uh, and their recipes have always worked pretty well for me. Uh, and they have a number of tofu stir fries and tofu stews, uh, including kind of a uh, what I, uh, tofu groundnut stew with with uh, peanuts and celery and Uh, So I I usually stick pretty close to to their recipe.
4: Depends on, you know, who I'm meeting with. Um, In the summertime, our soft tofu, and the Japanese way of making it, it's just shaved. And then with soy sauce, with garnish, with uh, um, onions on there, that was my favorite.
3: My favorite way is to, um, I buy a pound a week, cut it into fourths, eat a quarter of a pound, slice in half, sprinkle with soy sauce with nutritional yeast on top in between two pieces of toasted uh, whole grain bread and with a little bit of dill pickle um, on top.
5: My favorite way, like Chinese like to uh, cook the soup, like the winter melon soup, so I like to put the tofu with uh, winter melon together. so because it helps you to reduce heat, yeah, especially in summer, yeah, it works, yeah.
1: So, Bernice, how do you eat your tofu? Oh, I just love it, you know,
2: just steamed with mm. some scallions on top and a bit of soy sauce. And you can eat mm. that cold and it's perfect in the summer. Delicious. Mm. or I love it in mapo tofu of course the mm. silky tofu with the fiery sauce
1: so you kind of prefer the, like, the softer silk tofus yes mm. what about you? No, nah, I'm on the other end of the scale I'm what? all about the fried stuff <laughs> love, fried? yeah, I love the tofu puffs I love, oh actually I do like the tofu skin as well the and yuba? the yuba, yeah and when I go for hot pot I think, I'm guessing it's the yuba as well where it's kind of like in these little like rolled up cylinders and you dunk them into the hot pot and they go from being crunchy and crisp to like all like soft and soaking up all the delicious hot pot goodness so yeah I'm definitely all about the the textural side let's put it that way (laughs) I
2: am too but the smooth one
1: yeah look I'm never gonna say no to tofu
2: it's so good this episode is produced and edited by Carolyn Wright and we want to thank Matthew Roth
1: Bill Shirtluff. Jenny Yang and Renee So. If you want to ask about a dish or a drink, tweet us at burnunithk or at Alkira Ryan Frank. Eat Drink Asia is a monthly podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, happy eating!